Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I am really good at introductions. I'm Aaliyah, and I've believed in Santa Claus for 10 years, so I clearly needed more hanging flags on that pothole. I'm Cameron, and I'm going to draw attention to the fact that I don't have a flag comment prepared. I'm Ben, and I also don't have a flag comment prepared. <laughs> we are off to a fabulous start. <laughs> okay, really. was down before we started. We have Ben Grange with us this week, as you may have noticed. This week, we are talking about hanging flags in our writing. So maybe we should start out by just saying what that is. Hanging flags. It's also called hanging lanterns, um, lamp shading. There's lots of ways to say it. So what is it, guys? So picture when you go to Lowe's and you buy a really, really, really long board and they make you staple a red flag to the end so other drivers can see it and not run into it accidentally. It's kind of the same way in writing. When you put a flag on something, you are intentionally calling attention to it in the narrative so that the reader doesn't become frustrated with noticing something they're worried that the author did not notice. When you're writing, there's kind of two kinds of questions that readers can have. There's good ones and bad ones. The good questions you want your readers to have are, what happens next? Because I care. And because I want to figure out what this mystery is. The bad questions are, did the author mean me to interpret it this way? Or did they mean this other thing? Or what are they supposed to even mean at all? Right. Or did the author not notice that this weird thing happened and it shouldn't have happened? Or why aren't they explaining this thing that needs explaining? Yeah. Yeah, those are questions like road flares, because those are really noticeable. (laughs) They are. So why is it important to do this consciously in your writing? And actually, part of being able to hang flags is probably directly related to having beta readers or even alpha readers so they can tell you when you need to. But you should be able to be aware enough to do it yourself sometimes. When I'm a reader, I become really frustrated when I think that I'm smarter than the main character when I'm asking questions that in my mind could potentially solve the plot faster than the main character is. So I always love hanging flags because they reassure me that my questions have not been forgotten and that the main character, I can identify with them. They have the same questions. I agree. I also think it leaves openings in your plot. It allows you to leave things for later. Like if you're writing a series or if you're not going to get to something until later, you're not going to do a big reveal until later, or you can like point fingers toward the fact that you are going to do a big reveal. You can ask those questions or have your characters ask those questions or ask it in the narration so that your reader knows that it's coming. Right. It's the whole concept. I think this is the right phrase, but Chekhov's gun, is that the right? Yeah. Is that that's the right thing. So basically, like if you're going to have a gun that shows up in the climax for for you know solving the climax, then you better have that gun show up in the first scene or the second scene, or we can call it Chekhov's Infinity Gauntlet. You know, like if <laughs> if Thanos just came out with his Infinity Gauntlet like right at the end of Avengers, you'd be like, what the heck just happened here? But he shows up with it in the very first scene, so you know it's a big part of the plot, even if you have no idea about any of the comic universe at all. On the other hand, if you're going to have a Chekhov's Infinity Gauntlet, you need to make sure that you um, don't put it on the mantelpiece at the beginning of the book and then not use it. Right. So if you're hanging flags, make sure you're hanging them on purpose and not drawing your reader's attention to details that don't matter. It's kind of like, it's just courtesy to the reader to have these hanging flags. Um, It lets them be part of the plot and then 
kind of realize what details are important and which aren't, which ones they should spend their time worrying about, which is something a main character would be able to tell being there in the actual environment. But as readers, it's kind of hard because we only get what the author gives us. So another of my favorite ones is if you're writing a character that expresses views that are not actually, you know, polite or cool or like socially acceptable. A lot of times it's nice to like protect yourself as a writer by having flags showing that it's not okay behavior. And we don't always write characters. I mean, like think about Michael Scott in The Office, who is very consistently racist, sexist, and like a bunch of other stuff. But the the writers of the show and the, like the people who did all the, I don't know the words for <laughs> the producers, the filmmakers, I don't know, <laughs> the people who are doing it, made sure that you knew as a watcher that what he was saying and what he was doing was not okay. Well, I mean, we say we say red flags. Flags are noticeable. Lanterns are noticeable. But yeah, like the the expression "red flag" is that because it's a warning sign. Not not all flags are red, though. So some can be subtle. Some can be you know not so subtle. But they're all hints that things are coming. That things might come. Might not overtly state what's going to happen, but they're there. For me, there are always instances where. The writer simply needs to just hang up a flag on something and try not to use flowery language in an attempt to sound like a good writer and just say it flat out and let the reader know what's happening. I mean, for me as a writer too, I do this all the time and I used to do it way more than I do now. And I remember when I was in Brandon's class at BYU and he was in our classroom doing our workshop with with my group that week. And like his consistent comments on my piece was, or on my chapter that week was just hang a lantern on it. Like this was really vague. I didn't understand it. Why were you using so much purple prose here? And then I would explain, well, this is what's happening. And he'd be like, well, why didn't you just say that? (laughs) So oftentimes you just need to hang hang a lantern on what you're trying to say and not try to sound so smart or so good or so flowery in your language. That brings up another good point. It's a tool for guiding the reader to what they should actually be concerned about. So it works for for readers that are confused, but also readers that overanalyze it kind of like. I actually want to talk about how to do this because it sounds almost vague the way we're talking about it. We're like, oh, yeah. do it. Almost. <laughs> hang, hang a lantern on how to hang a lantern. Right. <laughs> we need more lanterns in our speech about hanging lanterns. Yeah. Right. So we're going to give you some um, concrete examples in books that we've read where we felt like people did a good job. Though Cameron made the very interesting observation that it's hard to come up with examples because if an author does it well, you don't notice. So maybe the examples we come up with are bad. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But I don't think so. I think that they're good. I actually really liked yours about The Last Airbender. We had an argument about it before we started recording. So I want Cameron to go Okay. <laughs> the argument's a bit strong. Well, so there's just a line. So I think it's like the second or first last Airbender episode. And Aang has been captured by the Fire Nation. Well, he's surrendered. Anyway, the point being is they're leading him down into the ship and his hands are tied. And he kind of looks around and then says something along the lines of, you guys haven't fought Airbenders before, have you? And then proceeds to completely kick all of their butts. Because they've never fought Airbenders before, but he's fought Firebenders. Without that line... You would trivialize, I mean, it still kind of trivializes it, but <laughs> without that line, he's, the moment would mega trivialize the threat the Fire Nation poses because you have this 10 year old kid who just takes on this entire battleship all by himself. But at least with that line, you have like this additional explanation that these particular firebenders have never fought an airbender before. And so there's an additional anyway. It highlights that fact. You could have put that together on your own 
if you've been paying attention. But but if you're in the target audience, maybe not. I don't know. I'm in the target audience because I feel like I'm 10. Nice. Nice. One of the ways that you can hang flags is by characters asking questions, kind of like Aang did. And another example I thought of is an I Am the Messenger by Marcus Zusak. So this book is about a, a character that gets these cards in the mail. They're like playing cards, the aces from each suit. And on each one, there are these pointers that point him to somebody who needs his help. And through the whole book, he's asking the question, who is sending me these cards? Who is sending me these cards? And then like another of the characters, because people just randomly end up helping him. And like the way things are put together, it's really jerky. Like characters end up coming in and helping him to accomplish something. And then they disappear from the narrative. And the only reason it works is because he's consistently asking that question. And some of those other characters that pop up and then leave, they ask that question too. They say, well, do you really think you're the only one who's getting sent these cards? And it ends up being a really important part to the climax. I have one that's massively over the top. So I was just I was just trying to think about other other books I've read. And um, in Moby Dick, <laughs> there's this consistent theme of how terrifying the whale is because it's white. And the author guesses, I think correctly, that not a lot of people associate white animals necessarily with the scariest color something could be. And so Melville doesn't so much hang a lantern on it as build a giant bonfire and dance on top of it. He has an entire chapter dedicated to explaining why the color white is the most frightening thing a whale could ever be. So it's a bit over the top. But if you're familiar with the book, that's an example of maybe hanging a flag that's a bit larger than it needs to be. You guys know who's a, who's a master of hanging a lantern on things is J.K. Rowling. I'm going to I probably will mention Harry Potter at least once in every single podcast that I'm on. Just going to let you know. Just to give you a like a an outrageous example of this, the sixth book is all about Draco rebuilding this vanishing cabinet in the Room of Requirement to bring Death Eaters into Hogwarts. But the the vanishing cabinet, it was mentioned in book two. Harry's in in detention, not in detention. He he just got caught by Filch for dripping mud all over the floor, and Filch wants to give him detention. And nearly headless Nix convinces Peeves to smash the vanishing cabinet over Filch's office so that Harry can get out of trouble. And so you, you see this, like this outrageous example of, of just foreshadowing and hanging a lantern on this, this random object that's not going to come back for four more books, but was done extremely well. And I mean, not everybody's going to have the opportunity to do that because not everybody's going to have a seven book deal, but that was, I mean, when I, when I reread the series, I don't know, how long it took me to figure this out. But when I read the series over again and and read that passage where Peeves smashes the vanishing cabinet, it was just like an explosion went on in my brain because I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly why Draco needs to fix the cabinet in book six. And if it hadn't been smashed in book two, then it wouldn't need to be repaired in book six. And she she just knew what was going to happen with that cabinet all the way back in book two. And granted, like this is kind of breaking the rules of, you know, not having this gun that's hanging on the mantle for this whole time, but kind of negates the fact because it's such an outstanding piece of foreshadowing of lantern hanging, I guess. Well, and Harry ends up hiding in the other one that's in Burks too. So you know that there are two and you know that vanishing cabinets are a thing. And so when she brings them up as like the climax of book six, you're like, oh, I know what that is. Another thing that I really liked in the Raven Boys, Ronan Lynch in the very first book says, sorry, what? 
I just said I love this book. They're so good. Ronan Lynch says really clearly that he dreams something into existence in the very first book. And it's never explained, even though it's kind of like a big plot thing later in the series. But Blue also notices this. And because she notices it, I'm like, okay, I can wait for an answer. But if nobody had said anything at all, I probably would have been like, what? What's going on? If she hadn't drawn attention to it, I probably just would have skimmed past it as like a Ronan thing and moved on. It's true. And then when it finally comes up later, you would have been like, what's going on? Why did this not come up before when we had a whole book with him before? Yeah. Another way to do this, if we do, we have any other examples of like your main character asking questions? There's actually a really good one. I've been rereading Leia Bardugo's Shadow and Bone. And early on in this, or early on in the story, as a child, she's tested for this magical ability, and she comes up blank. But then later on in the story, she actually does have this magical ability. And so I think in the part I've read so far, she's already asked two or three times, "Why didn't I show up for this testing?" or "Or why didn't my magic show up on this test?" And other characters are asking it, and so you know it's going to be an important part. Um, whereas if they didn't ask that, it could be an important part, but I would feel cheated later on for for no attention being called to that. It intentionally directs our attention to that detail so that we know it's important. Another way that you can draw attention to things or hang lanterns on things is um, characters' emotional reaction to the things that are happening around them. Um, One of the examples I thought of is in The Bells, which is a book about these girls who are capable of using magic to alter the appearances of people around them. And they're like owned by the king and queen and like they live in these tea houses and they help people to look pretty because apparently the normal people are like albino and don't look pretty according to societal standards and they need the extra help from these bells. The bells are treated in like a horrifying way. They're treated like property. And the the main character's emotional reaction to being treated like this shows the reader that this is normal and that this is the way that things are supposed to go. And by putting like the horrific behavior next to her compliance, it shows that something's going to happen with it. She's a little bit feisty about it. And is like, I wish this stuff didn't have to happen to me. But by putting those two things together, we know that something's going to happen with that and that it's not supposed to be that way, even if it, the world casts things that way. So would you say that it might be a good general rule to say that if there's something weird going on, don't let it pass without comment from someone? Yeah. Her emotional reaction to what's going on gives us the context for what the world actually, it gives us greater context for what the world looks like. That makes sense. And I think the key here is, is nailing the emotional reaction because so often when something strange happens and the reader or, or the, the main character has an emotional reaction to like, Oh my gosh, that's so weird. It often comes across as just like, Oh my gosh, that's so weird. When the reader wants something that's so much more satisfying than weird. I see this all the time in submissions that come into my inbox for like portal stories when a character will randomly go through a portal and land in a magical world. And their first response is, oh my gosh, this is so weird, but I already know that. And it happens in every single portal story. So it's not like anything new. And so it's a super cliche. It's not well done. And so what I want to see more of is a real visceral emotional reaction rather than oh my gosh this is so weird especially since i feel like how someone handles weirdness is much more informative than whether or not they think something is weird yeah exactly exactly yeah at least in the case when it's something that everyone thinks is weird and if if the main character is out of touch with their emotions 
I mean, if, if our emotions to the situation wouldn't line up with theirs, I mean, there's some, some exceptions, but um, we're going to kind of doubt everything else that comes through their perspective because we know it's, it's warped from what we would have. So if they were totally blase about going through a portal, um, which could be a useful tool later on, like you said, um, her perspective in the bells. If you're going to have someone who is unfazed by going through a portal, then you need to hang a lantern on why that is. Or like have them like, yeah, have their emotional reaction reaction be like, oh, not again, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, hey, again, like I'm excited to go through this again. Along with character reactions, uh, another one I thought of, we're just going straight through examples instead of actually talking about this. So feel free to stop me in my like list of examples anytime you want. Illuminae. Near the climax of the book, Katie and Ezra, the two main characters, have been talking to each other like through a messenger program pretty much. And at a certain point in the climax, Ezra Mason starts talking not the way he did before. And like in the context of what's happening, you're like, I guess he could be doing that. He's explaining to her how to use a gun. He gets really technical. He's like, you have to do this and you have to do that. And she's like, why are you talking like this all of a sudden? And so because Katie has an emotional reaction to it and says, why, what changed? It puts into context something that you find out later about Ezra Mason that I will not spoil for you right now, just in case you haven't read Illuminae. But by having the character react the same way I was, as I was reading, I was like, what is wrong with, I mean, the author needed to get some information across, apparently, about guns. But instead, it wasn't that. It was that something else was going on. And because Katie identified it, identified it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we'll get there. I, did. <laughs> I was okay to continue reading without getting kicked out of the story. Even just in the narration, it doesn't have to be something the main character says, but if extra attention is given to that, if extra light, if you will, is given to that, then um, the screen time somehow just logs it as important in my brain. Mm -hmm. Or like we were talking about The Office earlier, if you have like characters in the background going like, what? So often Michael Scott will do something that's horrible or racist or just wrong, and it will zoom into either Pam or Jim, and they will just both shake their heads at the camera, looking directly at it to let you know, like, um, no, Michael's also an idiot, so don't pay attention to him. So do we have any other tools or tricks that we can give to people about hanging lanterns? I mean, the best thing to, the best piece of advice that I can give you about hanging lanterns is to just know everything there is to know about your story. You're not going to hang every single lantern in your first draft or even in your second draft. But by the time you're done shaping your novel, you can go back and you know everything that's happening. You know your characters, you know your plot and your setting. And you can go through and piece together where it's best to hang lanterns, where it's best to foreshadow things, where it's best to put these flags throughout your book so that you can guide the reader along and, and pull their interest with how clever you are, with how much thought you put into where your characters were going and what what emotional reactions they were going to have throughout the book. Know everything. Just know everything there is. Know about your book. And then you can deliver lanterns to us. Be that omniscient author. <laughs> yeah. I would like to add to that too, um, that when people read your work before it is polished, or even after you think it's polished, if they say, I don't understand why this is happening, or... I don't think that this character has earned this yet or anything like that. Listen to feedback and then go back through and fix it. If you have somebody who says this doesn't make sense, don't sit down and explain it to them. Figure out how to put it in the narrative so that they won't have to ask questions. 
So we're going to move on to the second portion of our podcast. Just a quick review. We try not to be prescriptive, which means we try not to give specific advice about how to fix things that we see aren't working. Rather, we say this thing isn't working or maybe you should look at this and see how you can make it work better. If you'd like to check out the text of our of this submission, then you can go to our website. It's up right now. And then also, if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can submit in our submission guidelines are on our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And side note, we got a ton of submissions this week. Apparently, when I go and find writers and say, we don't have a ton of submissions. Does anybody else need a first chapter critique? A ton of people submit. So we got way too many to like ever look at all of them. And I'm really sorry. We would, we really wish we could look at all of them, but just know that you can continue to submit. So like, if you don't get a critique today, you can submit again for our next guest or for the next time Ben comes on and we'll look at it again. We do keep them and we'll try to like use them again later if we don't get a ton of submissions later. But if you really want to make sure we get to your chapter, just submit again another week. So summary for this week, Cole is a guardian angel His mother sees these faces and has episodes where she can't function as a result. And he starts seeing darkness at the same time. She has her episodes and he sets out to save her from it. So what are things we liked about this submission? I like the friendly narrator's tone. I I didn't feel like he was pretentious. There were some really good beats at the beginning where he's like, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself as he gives us information. Because he tells us about being a guardian angel and then explains what it means by saying you could be a guardian angel too. And there's some nice beats through there. There were a lot of cool one-liners, nice imagery in here. The author uses this line about Cole's mother saying she needed to create puzzles just as much as they needed her to create them. That was a really cool one-liner right there that gives us a little bit about his mom and just how complex her mind is. That was a good one-liner to just give us a lot of information packed all into that sentence. I mean, the author didn't even tell us all that was inferred, but I was able to pick up so much just from that one sentence. There were a lot of those littered throughout the the passage that I really liked. One line I particularly like, he's describing his little sister, and I have three little sisters myself, so this is very true, but he says, a mouse with wide eyes and teensy features patiently waiting for me to come get her for breakfast. I thought that was a nice line. I also think his family's approach to puzzles is is pretty neat. Um, so throughout the throughout the excerpt, it talks about how they'll do puzzles for birthday presents, and instead of getting their Christmas presents on Christmas morning, they have to solve a puzzle to get them. And um, the character recognizes that this is unusual and talks a little bit about how he's treated differently than other people, but it kind of bonds their family closer, and I like that. I liked that too. I especially like the description of being sent on a citywide chase scavenger hunt thing to find out that they were going to have a baby sister. And that also being when the dad found out that they were going to have a baby sister too. It said a whole lot about their family and the way her mom thought and like how close they are, I guess, that she had done that for them. It sounds really over the top and exciting and fun, a cool culture to be a part of. I really like the descriptions of the siblings, just their different personalities, because I feel sometimes when main characters have siblings, they all get lumped into one stereotype, like, oh, we just hate this person because they're annoying, or we like this person because they're actually nice to us. But each of these siblings had their own personality, and I thought that was well done. feels like most of the siblings got at least two different beats that showed different perspectives of their character. So like we had the the teenage 13-year-old sister who is... When she's first introduced, she's super annoying. And then later, she's super helpful because she takes over the role of mom when mom is having an episode. And then we have 
Uh, the other one that I can remember off the top of my head is the baby sister is initially introduced as super cute. Later on, she's screaming. So, <laughs> In the true baby fashion. When his mom started having the episode in here, it got pretty tense. I thought the author did a pretty good job of, of pulling the reader along. That was kind of creepy and weird. And the author did a pretty good job of just getting those tense beats in there. I agree. I kind of flew through this submission. I really enjoyed it. And um, I was really interested to find out what happened. Me too. I actually really liked all of the the reactions to the moms episode too, because you had very different ones from each kid and you can see how much it's affecting their family. And so yeah. you can kind of see why it has, I mean, because the main character is kind of like almost an adult figure, even though he's 14. And you can see why it is that he has come to where he is in their family because of the episodes. So if we'd like to move on to things that might need a second look, I think one of the things I struggled with the most is that I didn't feel very grounded through most of the submission. Starting with the very beginning, I wasn't sure if we were talking like urban fantasy that takes place on Earth or if it was high fantasy because we're putting things in context of like Earth and guardian angels. He starts out with, you know what guardian angels are, right? And so I'm assuming that I, in my role as a person who lives on Earth, I'm supposed to relate to him the way he's talking to me. But then later he throws in things like there's a place called Almoria and everybody who lives there is a guardian angel, I think. And then later on, it talks about how they're in Colorado Springs. So I was like, okay, we must be on earth again. But then his mom uses really weird, not expletives, but like exclamations. She says blazing marbles, which made me think that was like an in-world swear. And yeah, that confused me for a minute because I was like marbles. Where did marbles come from? Mm-hmm. The first time it happened, I was like, this makes no sense. And then it took me a long time to realize, oh, this is an expletive. So I just had a lot of questions at the beginning and not the kinds of questions that were propelling me forward. They're the kinds of questions that made me stop and reread sentences over and over again. Yeah, there were a few of those for me too. I'll second Caitlin on that as well. And I hope this isn't prescriptive, but I feel like for me, I, I would have been helped there if I had a little more info dumping, if that makes sense. Like not so much info that it was a dump, but I feel like there was room for a little more info. We needed we needed yeah. more flags as to what kind of setting this is. I think this was the perfect submission to talk about this week because there are a lot of moments when we could have used flags and lanterns to just show the reader more of the setting, more of these characters and who they are and their their association with this other world or angelic realm or whatever it is i i think i can put my finger on one of the moments that kind of that kind of threw me so initially we have kind of the opening prologue which reads very much like this is at least fantasy or alternate earth but then we move into the main story and we get a lot of real world place names dropped like colorado springs and we get references to real world figures like einstein uh, which makes you think okay so this is this is this our world but then there's a note that his mother gets that mentions the fictional place and our viewpoint character doesn't react to that fictional name at all. So I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> is this what, what, what is, how does all of this fit together? And I can guess, but I don't want to have to. I was just think, I just think the, um, for me, like the very first portion of the manuscript where I thought that this is where we could use some flags is, the third paragraph after prologue thingy was when it says, calm down, Cole, she's probably fine. That paragraph, like it talks about her sickness. It talks about darkness. It talks about, yeah, I guess those were the two main things that it talked about that I had no idea what they were. And if 
you're opening your book with those images and not explaining to the reader what they mean and what they are, you've instantly lost me right there. And that's the beginning of your book where you want to hook your reader. So you need to show us what these things mean because I mean, like sickness is super vague. Like when I first read that, I was like, what does she have cancer? What, what's wrong with her? I don't know. It could be anything. And darkness. I mean, like the darkness that you saw last night, when I think of that, I think like looking out my window and seeing the sky at night and not some mythical or magical force, which probably is what you're referring to. So there's a lot of information that can be put right there. It doesn't have to be like all packed in and dumped on the reader, but those two things specifically are going to tell us a lot about what your story is about. So you could say, in my mind, they read as conflicting flags. So being vague and saying sickness and darkness for me were flags for like a high fantasy setting. Yeah. Whereas name drops like Einstein in Colorado Springs says this is an alternate Earth setting. And I didn't know how to reconcile those two. That, right. doesn't, that doesn't say they can't be reconciled, but it needs to be done on the page and quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. I wanted to float this out to you guys. I thought the main character was a girl. Like every single time... Somebody said Cole. I was like, wait, oh, he's a boy. He's a boy. Okay. But for some reason in the near, I just, I just thought he was a girl the whole time. Did anyone else feel like that? There were some, for the most part, I felt like he was a boy, but there were some moments when, when he was describing his mother's petite and his sister's hair is honey blonde. That felt more like a girl to me, but I would say in the prologue, I felt he was a boy. The boys can notice those things. No, I think that there's room for it, but I, I just felt like the way it it came out. I mean, I haven't read the whole book, so it's hard to tell, but yeah, personally, from my perspective, like reading this as an agent, as if this were a submission, like I would not have gotten past the first page because this first page prologue thing is something that I would absolutely advise to cut. And this is prescriptive, but that's me pulling my strings here. I'm the agent doing the, (laughs) you're allowed. (laughs) Like I would personally cut that whole thing. Your reader doesn't need to know any of this information in order to connect with this character or this plot from chapter one, like the sickness of the mother, the darkness, all those things that you eventually do get into and show us. And that episode that the mom has, like, that's all great stuff. We don't need any of this information or, or these vague questions at the beginning. Like, do you believe in guardian angels? Not really my favorite first line. And, you know, the second person is kind of jarring. Yeah, second person is absolutely jarring because we go back, we get into the book and there's none of it. So I would, yeah, my advice would be to just cut that out. I was actually worried a little bit because we started with him later in life as a guardian angel, whatever that means in the second person prologue thing. And then he says, we have to go back to when I was up to my 15th birthday. And through the whole first chapter, I was like, does that mean we're going back to when he's older? Like, which of these is the aberration? Like, which one? I don't know where the narrative is going to be. Yeah. Or what, where this book is going to take place or what's important, I guess. Yeah. I agree. I liked the tension the prologue gave in the fact that I'm assuming now at some point in the story, we're going to see him die. And I I want to read that, (laughs) but just, just a little vague. But I did like that tension. If there's another way to put that in, that would be really good. Just thinking about the movie Tangled. I think this is the first line with Flynn Rider saying, this is the story of how I died. But it's not really the story of how he died because he doesn't actually, you know, die all the way. Boiling tangled for everybody, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Years ago. Okay. 
I think one of the major notes I had on this is just when he first hears the scream and he goes downstairs, then there was a lot of description and explanatory material between when he hears that scream and when he actually goes in and sees his mom and finds out that it's a, a note. And so for me, that made kind of the the tension kind of got cut and died down in there. I got kind of bogged down. I really think that explanatory material was great and useful for grounding. And if there was just a way to put it in somewhere else and kind of condense that area. I had a little bit of a hard time after the episode started. I wasn't sure how close the shadow was that he saw because it's vague. It says there's a shadow, but not how close it is. And so when he runs outside, I'm like, wait, why is he running outside? Because I thought it was far away for some reason. That might just be on me. And then I was like wondering, like I wanted those grounding details. Like, is he breathing it in? Is he in the middle of it? Is it across the field? And he's scared it's going to come closer. I And then as soon as he goes in, the tension just like cuts off pretty much. Like the kids go to school and he's like, here's a puzzle, mom, or give me your puzzle that you want to give to me. And then everything's fine. And so... I was having a hard time seeing how much it was going to affect their family because it seems so easy to diffuse the situation. Yeah, I wasn't sure of the consequences. I agree there. I had one additional point. Maybe this is the cynic in me coming out, but I wanted I wanted more weaknesses from the main character, especially with our introduction of, look at me, I'm so selfless, I glow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he's sarcastic about it and not sanctimonious helps. But I want to know, this kid's got a lot of stuff going on that would cause baggage, and I want to see it. He's what, uh, an MMA fighter, too, and also seems to be like the perfect older brother. And he's a genius. Which, you can make it all work, but at least at least for my taste, I want to see I mean, like, like, some of the down, more downsides of the setup. Like, BBC's Sherlock has like all of those things. He, he can fight. He's a genius. He can solve crimes. He can do a ton of stuff. But, you know, he's got these major drawbacks of, you know, being a jerk. Um, <laughs> so two things. The, the story does bring out that, A, because he's different, you know, he's treated that way at school. And then, B, he has doubts about his own sanity because he's seeing some of the same things his mother is. But we don't see any consequences of those drawbacks, which makes them not feel like drawbacks. Which there's room for that to happen. We did only read the first chapter. Mm-hmm. I just think that with the I'm so selfless, I'm glowing opener, <laughs> you, you might want to front load some of those drawbacks a little more than you might need to in other stories. Which if you cut that prologue, then maybe that leaves a little bit of room for exploration in the next couple of chapters. But I mean, for me, this the, the main drawbacks were that it took a while to get into the book. But once I did, I was enjoying a lot about it. Me too. I mean, the premise is really cool. I mean, scary darkness, his mom sees faces, he's worried that he might have the same thing because, yeah, it's really cool. And I like that he actually has a family. Families get tossed by the wayside so much, you know, orphan, just snip, snip. So then let's close things up for this week. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. We're always so happy to have you here. Um, So next week, we will have Rosalind Eves on as a guest. She's the author of Blood Rose Rebellion. So if you'd like a critique from Rosalind, you'll have about a week to submit your first chapter to us. If you didn't get a critique this week and you feel like Rosalind would be a good fit, then submit again. And remember, this is both a video and a podcast. If you would like to listen to the shorter version, then listen to the podcast. But if you want to watch us make funny faces at each other, then the video is the way to go. We also would really appreciate likes, subscribes, and all that other stuff. It helps people to find the show. If you want to ask us any questions or tell us how awesome we are, you can find us on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram it's at Lit Service Podcast. I don't know why it's different. I don't know why we did that, but we did that in that way. Anyway, oh, 
for Lit Service. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.